Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we're still in this first opening sentence, which, is, which really extends all the way to verse 4. We're going to wrap up verse 2 this morning. I do think, I plan on going through this at a faster pace than I am presently. I don't think I'll be covering one phrase at a time each week, but um, we've really been setting a, a foundation um, for how we'll be working our way through the book, and it's, I think, important to do that slowly and carefully. But you likely have heard of uh, the marshmallow test. I've mentioned it before in sermons when young children were given a marshmallow uh, to which they had to sit and, and wait. Uh, the person instructed them, if you wait and don't eat this one, I'll come back and give you a second one and you can have both. And they didn't have a specified amount of time that they were told they would have to wait. So a few minutes later, the person would come back and if they hadn't eaten their marshmallow by then, and it was one of those giant supersized marshmallows, you know, then they'd give it and get a second one. But most of the children couldn't do it. Right? They, they just, they had nothing else to do in that room. There was nothing else to distract them. So they just looked at this marshmallow. And the temptation was so overwhelming that, you know, they'd start by touching it and then tasting their finger where they touched it, and then maybe licking it, and then eventually the, the whole thing's gone. But those who could distract themselves were, were given that additional prize, right? They were, they were able to, to look away or to just play under the table. Some of them would completely uh, just try to do their best to forget about this marshmallow. But this example is oftentimes used to illustrate that value of delayed gratification, right? If you can just put off um, receiving something immediately, right? You, you oftentimes will have a better and greater reward, right? So most of us are willing to, uh, are willing to forfeit, um, like, I guess we, we forfeit the greater things in life because we want this smaller reward that's instant or immediate. Think about, I mean, just how often, how many of us know that sugar is bad for us, yet we cannot stop eating it, right? Just a little bit, and then a little bit more, and then we want it in everything, right? Our, our drinks and our, our, our meal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it's the same way, right? We, we, we forsake what we know is better for us, what is best for us, for that instant gratification. Well, the original readers of this letter um, or message or sermon or whatever you want to refer to it as, they were tempted to relieve this pressure that, uh, of mounting persecution upon them. They were tempted to relieve that by retreating from Christ to, back to a temple worship, back to an old covenant worship. Right? They knew that if they were willing to turn back or to drift away from the gospel, as we'll read in chapter 2, verse 1, that they would find instant relief within their culture. If they could, if they could just forsake Christ, go back to what they were already doing beforehand, they would have, been, they would have had a lot less persecution to face. 
So this is why the author repeatedly encourages them. We'll see this theme of encouraging them to hold fast to the faith, hold fast to their confession. Hebrews 4.14 says, now when, when the author is not explicitly challenging them to persevere, exhorting them to persevere, he takes the time to explain the magnitude of what they have gained. Right? To, just to focus on what you have now because of Christ. That's really what this message is about. Don't lose sight of that. Because if you understand that, then turning away from him would be unthinkable. Right, so he does this by emphasizing the blessings that they have in union with Christ. And so this opening prologue establishes really the outline of the whole letter. Uh, the whole message is here contained in this opening sentence. Time and again, the author will show how the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than the sacrificial system. He is the final and, and full and complete fulfillment of what Christ has promised to us. The full and final installment of this progressive special revelation. We think of general revelation, what, what all people know and understand just by looking at creation, just by observing right, their world, this world in which we live and seeing the order and the beauty and the structure and, and, and then recognizing that there is an author and a creator and that he is he is a good God, right? We can understand some of the attributes of God's power just by observing. But there's also this special revelation where God condescends to speak to us in a way that we can understand, and he, he reveals himself to us in this special way, and he does so progressively so that in the beginning it was through prophets and it was varied and it was in different times so that you got pieces of that revelation, and then his emphasis here is that in the Son, we find the fulfillment of all of those promises. Right? So that in him, all the promises of the law find fulfillment. All the promises find their yes in Christ, as uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. So we'll look at this second half of verse 2, which then transitions from that idea of progressive special revelation that finds its fulfillment in the Son to describing the son who is the son what is he like and so we're just going to focus on those first two descriptions this morning the son as the heir of all things and then secondly the son as the agent of creation they do go together and we'll make that clear as we work our way through uh, this message but from the opening sentence then the author is is making it clear to his readers that they have nothing to gain and everything to lose if they return to the practices of the Judaic church. Right, if they retreat from, what, from the place that they've come to, then they lose everything. And so Jesus wasn't merely the last in a long line of prophets or like the, the final one who, who might, might have a, a, a climactic message for us to listen to and consider but you know what? There was a lot of good prophets before him. We can go back and we can appreciate what they said, right? We don't have to have Jesus. No, he's not just the last in a long line of prophets. He's the fulfillment that brings the work of all who came before him to its glorious conclusion. And that's what the New Testament is a reflection of. 
is everything that the Son taught us. So we minimize, this is kind of the, the thing I want us to recognize as we come to this text, we minimize the value of that future reward when we compromise our faith for immediate relief. When we look for that immediate relief, we're willing to be silent when we should speak. We're fearful of man and not of God. We minimize the value of that future reward. And so this is really where the author of Hebrews is going to focus on. What does that future reward entail? It's, it's about Christ. Right? And so we're going to understand who that is as we read it. But let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you again for this time to open it up and to, and to sit before you. Lord, we want to be attentive. We want our hearts to be softened to this truth. Lord, we, want to, we don't want to be hard or distant or cold or indifferent. Lord, we want to be engaged with our minds and our hearts, our, our affections stirred up. Lord, that, that you might begin to do a work in our hearts to transform us from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, as we commune with you through your word, Lord, may you strengthen our faith. May you enliven and enrich our, our affections, Lord, that we would delight in you. Lord, that we would be restored to the, the joy of our salvation this morning. And if there's any thought of turning back, if there's any thought of forsaking you, Lord, that this would be a tremendous reminder for us of the privileges and blessings that we have to be in communion with you. And the blessing that it is to be here this morning. Lord, help us to receive that for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much or is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the first point I want us to consider is just this idea that he's the heir of all things. We'll spend most of our time here. God has, a, has appointed the Son as the heir of all things. Right? There's a, a direct correlation between the Son's inheritance and the reign, his reign at the right hand of the Father. We'll look at a couple of cross-references this morning to, to understand that better. But here in this section, we explicitly see what his inheritance includes. All things. He's the heir of all things. Now, we can also acknowledge that it implies something. If he is the heir of all things, then it implies something about his supremacy, his authority. Right? If the son inherits everything, then there are no other worthy recipients. 
to share with, right? To, to take from his inheritance. And we'll talk more about what, what I mean by that. I don't, I don't mean that we don't participate and have a share in his inheritance, but it, how do we do that? It's through our union with him, right? Apart from him, there is no one that's taking from Christ and what he has, right? All things. Now, this is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. You have actually verse 7 of Psalm 2 quoted in verse 5. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That comes directly from Psalm 8, I mean uh, Psalm 2, and we've acknowledged that if, if the audience here is a, is a group of Jewish Christians, they would be well-versed in the Old Testament, so a reference to a psalm could potentially have the entire context in mind. And, and as you look at the, the passage and, and the surrounding language of the passage, you do find that this author is, is probably reflecting largely upon the, the content of Psalm 2 at this point. And so if you turn back in your Bibles with me to Psalm 2, I want us to just consider uh, those, those primary verses there from verses 7 and 8. We'll reference a couple other ones so you can stay there for a little bit. But verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 2 says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, that's the phrase that's quoted there in verse 5 of Hebrews 1. But it goes on to say, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So the son is to receive the nations and the ends of the earth. So it's there, it, it, it most likely is implying and emphasizing people, right? People who would be his inheritance. And they would come from every tribe, tongue, and language, right? There would be representatives who would come to him as part of his inheritance. But it also here, and as the author in Hebrews emphasizes, it includes everything in creation. That it's, it's all his. And so there's an allusion here, first of all, to this, when did this happen, right? What, at what point is Christ appointed the heir of all things? Well, there's a primary reference to his exaltation. We sang about that. That was our first hymn, right? Um, let me go back to this. All hail the power of Jesus' name. That, that comes in a section of hymns in our Psalter hymnal that reflect upon the exaltation of Christ. When did that happen? Well, it begins at his resurrection and then at his ascension to the right hand of the Father. That's primarily when the exaltation begins and he's at the right hand. But we also know it, it, it's this comprehensive eschatological reign that he remains exalted in a sense. He's at the right hand of the Father even now he continues to reign. So his reign began then, and it will continue and even into eternity, right? He will return, and he will, he will reign and rule with us. So in verse 5, the author quotes Psalm 2-7, and we can assume that, that this, this broader context is in view here. This would include then, if you look down to verse 12, where it says, "'Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way.'" You see something similar to that language in, in Psalm 6 that we sang. This idea of the, the wrath of God, right? Rebuke me not in your wrath. There's this, this recognition, right, that we need to be at peace with the Son. 
And so if we are not at peace with him, then we will incur his wrath. And there's a genuine judgment. Look, back, look up to verse 9 of chapter 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, the sovereignty and supremacy of Christ can bring genuine judgment. But so is the prospect of blessing. And verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so those are the alternatives. You're either taking refuge in Christ, taking refuge in the Son, or you will incur his wrath. And because he is the heir of all things, there is nothing, there is no other alternative. You must deal with him. And so while Christ becomes the heir of all things, upon his exaltation, he, he's been appointed to that, in a sense, from all eternity, right? But he accomplishes that work and, and receives that title at his exaltation, but it's ultimately not until after all things have come into being that he is finally capable of receiving his entire possession. Think about that just in terms of people, right? If, if there's a certain number of the elect that are coming to him as part of his inheritance, well, not all of them, presumably at least, we don't, we don't know, but not all of them have been born yet. And so they must come into existence for him to ultimately receive uh, the blessings or, or to take possession of what rightly belongs to him. So this verse speaks of his appointment as heir. Right? In other words, Christ has already assumed the title. He's already begun to reign, even though his rule has not yet become total or complete in time. Right? Donald Hagner summarizes it well, I think, when he says this, as the heir all things already belong to the Son in principle, just as they will actually and finally be his at the end. So, so the fulfillment, right, the completion, the culmination of his heir, of his reign, and of his rule, and of his inheritance has not been received at this time but he has already accomplished the work and he has already received it in principle, in title. It is, as Peter reflects upon, like he's, he's, we're already seated in the heavenlies, even though we're presently here on earth, right? It's, it's as good as that because the promise is that secure. That's the idea here. So this will be clear in the next chapter. In fact, you'll see the author quoting from Psalm 8 in chapter 2. And there he suggests that all things are placed under subjection of Christ. All things are placed under the subjection of Christ. But he goes on to qualify that in the second part of chapter 2, verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So while all things are in subjection to him, we, we don't actually experience that yet. We don't see it with our eyes. That's because his inheritance includes the world to come. If it's everything, then it's even the things that haven't come into being yet. As he says in Hebrews 2, 5. So later on, we'll see this already aspect when we get to chapters 11 and 12. We'll see multiple times where, where we are already beginning to participate in the blessings of Christ's reign. And, and even of, of the inheritance that awaits. 
And you can compare this to the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 28, where he reflects upon the same psalm, Psalm 8. So John Owen says, it's not, or it is but a little while before he will cast off and dispel all those clouds and shades which at present interpose themselves and eclipse his glory and majesty from them that love him. Right, so, so the point here is that even, even someone who, who perceives Hebrews a little differently than I do, we all recognize that there's some, there's some limit to what we are experiencing of Christ's rule and reign and authority in this life and in this world. And we can say that all, with all together, unity and certainty, that Christ has already secured his appointment as the heir of all things and that ultimately excludes nothing from his sovereign authority. Right? It's simply a matter of when that reality will become part of our experience. Some of us view that as happening prior to his return. Others of us view it as happening after his return. But the point here and what Hebrews is emphasizing is that it is all about Christ. He, it, right? he is the heir of all things. And so he has authority and supremacy over all things. His victory is secure. And so we go on from there to this idea of the agent of creation, and it really combines well with what he's saying here. After, the, after sta- stating or starting the end goal, the, the, that he will inherit all things, the author returns to the starting point, the creation. The sun is supreme from beginning to end. The sun will inherit all things in part because he was instrumental in fashioning all things. And so we find a parallel passage in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So why should we care that God has spoken to us by his son? Because the world was made through him and for him. Christ proclaims his his lordship over all he created as Lord. He enjoys the privilege of inheriting it as well. So there's no greater claim to lordship than the one who made all things and who then inherits all things. If the Son was an agent of creation, then he has existed from all eternity with the Father. So the Son is just as eternal as the Father and thus equal with the Father. And based upon this line of reasoning, then Athanasius explains that the Son is designated as God because he has existed from all eternity. So the son's subjection to the father is only in reference then to his humanity. This is important. There's a bit of a debate going on within not not only within the church, broadly speaking, but within the reformed world. Uh, there is a, a growing minority of people who who hold to this view called eternal functional subordination. Um, there's a couple of different terms for it, but we'll go with that one. EFS is what it's typically referred to as. Right, this would be a con- this what I what I'm articulating would be contrary to this doctrine of eternal functional subordination. The son's subjection to the father 
is only in reference to his humanity. So in the past few decades, we have seen a, a handful of influential Reformed scholars attempt to defend what is heterodox teaching, eternal functional subordination. And I just want to review a couple of, of classic historic statements from our early church fathers here. One being Augustine. Actually, look at Philippians chapter 2. Jump, uh, jump ahead to, or back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, speaks of this humiliation of Christ or his humility, counting others more significant, right? He's calling the people in Philippi to count others more significant than, than themselves. And so then as a, as a premier example of humility, he points to Christ. And we read in verse 6 and 7, Actually, we'll go back to verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. You say, well, that doesn't sound like he's equal with God. It just said he didn't consider it something to be grasped. Here's what Augustine says in De Trinitate. Reflecting upon these verses, he says, It's not without reason that Scripture mentions both that the Son is equal to the Father and that the Father is greater than the Son. For the first, the idea that the, the Son is equal to the Father, the first is said on the count of the form of God. Right? In accordance to the nature, the divine nature of Christ, he is equal with the Father. On the second... The idea that the father is greater than the son, the second is on account of the form of a servant without any confusion. So according to his human nature, he subjects himself to the will of the father. He does only the will of the father and he obeys perfectly and he satisfies the righteous requirements of the law as a servant in his humanity. So Thomas Aquinas follows with the same warning in his Summa Theologiae. He says this, As we are not to understand that Christ is a creature simply, but only in his human nature, whether this qualification be added or not, as stated above. So he, he's referring to a previous um, question and answer. He says, So also we are to understand that Christ is subject to the Father, not simply, but in his human nature. Right, so we cannot think of this subjection as being a total subjection from all eternity, or as the advocates of eternal functional subordination would, would argue, right, that, that there is some sense in which he has always been subjected to the Father in his deity as well. Now Aquinas says Christ is subject to the Father not simply but in his human nature, even if this qualification be not added. And so even if there's a reference to his subjection to the Father without some kind of qualification, he says it doesn't, that doesn't change things, right? If you're talking about the person, we still need to recognize that there is a, there's two natures within the Son. And that, and that uh, regardless of what is stated, we recognize that in, in accordance with his deity, they are equal. In accordance with his humanity, there is submission or subordination. 
And then he goes on to say, it is better to add this qualification in order to avoid the error of Arius, who held the son to be less than the father. So he's saying, the adding that qualification, explaining those differences is important because if we don't, we fall into the potential of heresy, that of Arius, who rejected really the orthodox view and understanding of the Trinity. Now in the 19th century, the Scottish minister John Brown points out that in order that, that this, this order in the operations of God does not imply subordination. And then, uh, reading uh, a modern commentary by Robert Paul Martin, he actually just died, I think, in 2016. But he says this, the idea of agency, and he's reflecting upon this verse right here, that he is, uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verse 2. He says, the idea of agency, of course, does not suggest inferiority. Indeed, as at John 1, 1 through 3, and I'll turn there real quick. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So just because he was an agent of creation doesn't mean he was in subjection to the Father through that. He existed with the Father from all eternity. And so agency in creation and oneness of substance with the Father are in perfect accord, according to Martin. And he says this, By ascribing to the Son creative power, an unequivocal mark of deity, you can look at Isaiah 37, Jeremiah 10, he says, the Son is declared to be God. So, what does this mean for us, and how should we apply this as we conclude? If the Son is heir of everything that he himself was instrumental in creating, then this small group of Jewish Christians in Rome have everything to lose if they turn back from him. Everything. We could say that departure from Christ is forfeiture of the inheritance that he has promised to share in glory. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like Calvinism. Well, that is actually the fifth point, perseverance of the saints. It, you have to endure. So we say, well, is it appropriate to live for that future reward? Should we be looking for that? Should we be living for that? Doesn't it sound a little selfish to focus on my personal inheritance? Doesn't it cheapen the sacrifice that was made? Well, Jesus, the author of Hebrews, will say in chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. His eyes were set upon the future reward, and it did not diminish his sacrifice in any way. So we will have to endure temporary discomfort, tribulation in this life, and therefore appreciating the glory of our future inheritance that Peter says is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for us. That is precisely what will enable us to persevere. That is what it means to walk by the Spirit. 
and not by sight. Even though we don't see everything in subjection, we have faith that Christ is ruling and reigning and that he will do so for all eternity. That's part of what it means to store up our treasures in heaven. And so since Christ is the heir of all things and we have nothing, or then we have nothing for eternity if we do not have him. Apart from Christ, we will only find misery. And that is our inheritance from Adam, both in this life and in the next. If we are united to Christ, however, then we are enriched with everything that is good. In other words, Christ restores to us what we lost in Adam. And so we go from being fearful slaves looking only for our satisfaction in this world to becoming sons who live as heirs of the world to come. We also become joint heirs with our elder brother. You can reflect on Galatians 4, Romans 8. And this means that we will inherit the privilege of ruling and reigning with Christ for all eternity. Listen to what Paul says to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, if we persevere, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So in other words, the, the hope that we have of ruling and reigning with Christ is secure because we are united to him who cannot deny himself. So let us turn now to our Heavenly Father, not with the spirit of fear, but with the spirit of adopted sons who are grateful that we have the privilege of becoming joint heirs of an eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's, it is a privilege to reflect upon these deep truths, and it's maybe easy for us to, to say, oh, I've heard this before. I, I understand that, and these things are, are sort of just basic truths of, of our Christianity even understanding better who the Son is. And from, from our childhood, we've heard about Jesus. And oftentimes, we find Jesus to be the answer to every question that's asked in Sunday school. And so we've come to understand and appreciate that he is central to our faith. And yet, Lord, in... In that centrality, oftentimes we can become numb or indifferent or not thinking about the weight of his centrality in our lives. And we become caught up with this world and the the tribulation and the trials and the suffering that we endure here. And that becomes all-consuming. So, Lord, remind us of the inheritance that awaits us in glory, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Lord, so many other things in this life fade. 
we we build ourselves up about you know the the latest toy that we want to have and we get it and then it and then the joy of having that begins to fade almost immediately and our appreciation of it begins to wane lord may that not be true of the gospel may that not be true of our relationship with christ that that he would continue to get greater and bigger in our minds, that, that, that our appreciation for him would only grow. And Lord, when the clouds of despair, when the, when the frustrations of this world pound upon us incessantly day after day, Lord, may we look to that glory that awaits us in the future. And may that be our, our joy. May that be what strengthens us to persevere. Lord, as we respond with song, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, may all of these be a means of grace for us to strengthen our unity with one another, to give us a greater appreciation for these fundamentals of our faith. And may we never veer away from that. May we never turn away from Christ and to find ourselves destitute and desperate and ultimately left with nothing. May we, may we want more of him. May we crave him. May we recognize Lord, the, the value that we have in him and in your word, that it would be more, more to us than our own food and water, that it would sustain us Lord, we ask all of this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response. We'll sing hymn number 421, Christ Shall Have Dominion. <laughs>